This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. It was the knighted philosopher Francis Bacon in the late 17th century who served Queen Elizabeth I, who first uttered the famous, often repeated words, knowledge is power. Using this phrase as his foundation, Lord Bacon developed what is now known to us as the scientific method. This method has guided and continues to impact how we acquire knowledge and use it. Whether it is scientists and engineers at NASA calculating a trip to Mars or researchers like our guest today who try to help us understand everything from the finite to the infinite, the scientific method is used to help us gain knowledge. Why? Because knowledge is power. A new study published by the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan reveals insights about the screening and referral of food insecure patients as a key strategy in helping people become food secure. Today on our show, Dr. Marissa Worka, who is a research and evaluation project manager at CHART, the Center for Health and Research Transformation, is our guest. Join Dr. Worka, Jerry Brisson, and me next on this edition of Food First Michigan. back, everyone. As promised, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the WJR studio, and our guest, Dr. Marissa Worka. Yeah. And, yeah, hey, look at that. <laughs> and um, Marissa, welcome to Food First Michigan. This is your first time to be with us on the show. We're going to talk, we've already talked a little bit about who you are uh, at, at the Center for um, Health and Research Transformation. I love that title, by the way, um, Transformation. We need a lot more of that going on in our work for sure. So welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And we want to talk about the report and, and what it means to our work and, and how it's going to inform our work. But first, we want to know about you. So tell you, introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us how you got to be in this position of, of influence and the ability to write a report like this. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I'm currently at CHART, and my role there is I'm a project manager for our research and evaluation team. Um, and I uh, am a lead analyst on a lot of our, our survey work. And so, um, you know, we do a, a survey of Michigan physicians, which, you know, this report is based off of. Um, and then we also do another survey that's kind of like a, a complement um, of consumers in Michigan, um, you know, patients and what they're thinking about certain issues. Um, and so, you know, I do that. And then I also do a lot of work looking at um, kind of the integration of healthcare and social care mm -hmm. um, 
prior to chart, I um, my background is in sociology and um, gerontology. So um, I used to do a lot of work um, looking at family caregivers um, and the role that they play as advocates for older adults and helping navigate systems and, um, you know, j- just a big interest of mine um, through, you know, watching some of my family members be caregivers. Um, and yeah, you know, with the sociology background, the the influence of social needs and health has always been something I'm I'm really interested in. So well, you've got a heart for it, obviously, mm-hmm. right? It comes right out. But you've got a head for it too. You you you're one of those people that looks at statistics and comes out with things like nine out of ten doctors surveyed said, right? I mean, you know, it's 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 both, right? And we need both. And we talk about the importance of data in our work. You can't just have a good idea. You've got to show that that idea has merit some kind of way. And so it's great that you can kind of satisfy both those things, a uh, uh, real ability to look at the numbers and understand what they mean with a heart for why those numbers have to be there in the first place. So thank you so much for that. It's what makes our world go around. Well, it's it's <clears throat> that you're exactly right, Jerry. But the real question for this segment is how does a Purdue Boilermaker come to work at the University of Michigan Go Blue. So get right to the gold and blue. Yeah. (laughs) Just think of it as one big Midwest happy family. But yeah, it is funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So you did graduate from Purdue. You Mm -hmm. earned your PhD there and um and and you, you were around Lafayette for some time, I think, and and uh we're glad that you came east to Michigan and you're having this impact here so so um I but I'm thinking you're a boilermaker at heart here. <laughs> definitely got some yeah strong boilermaker connections and a soft spot for, for sure them, so. well they invested in you you invested in them and now you're the project manor manager at um University of Michigan with the uh, Center for Health and Research Transformation and uh, you, you've written this report, several of you have, I think there's some, some co-conspirators on this, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, shout out to Melissa Reba and Karen Teske. Okay, um, mm-hmm. great. Well, we wanna, we wanna, we wanna pick this um, uh, report up, and I think probably right now, you know, is a good time to try to introduce it. Can you just maybe share with us, like, what was the premise, what was, um, what was the uh, what was that word I, that big word they used to teach us in school? You know, the, what was not premise but the hypothesis? Ah, very good. <laughs> yeah, what were we trying to prove here? Nice job. Nice. Thanks for bailing me out, there, Jerry. <laughs> good partners. Um, yeah. So, uh, kind of our goal with this article, um, you know, something that. Um, A lot of the work we do at Chart Center is around is just, you know, when people think of healthcare, oftentimes they think of, you know, um, some of those downstream, you know, care treatment that people receive, but just kind of this growing recognition of the important role that social needs play, you know, things like food security, um, you know, if you don't have access to food, you don't have access to nutrition, the impact that that has on health, um, but also thinking of, you know, the care that people receive 
um, in a more broad sense, right? So usually when we think of healthcare teams, we think of, you know, physicians, we think of nurses. Um, but I think there's been a growing recognition that keep, you know, um, important members of that care team are community partners mm-hmm. um, and community-based organizations that, you know, physicians rely upon um, to kind of, uh, you know, connect patients with referrals. Um, you know, they play a, a very uh, important role um, in the health of of Michiganders. So. Sure. So in our world, that means food banks and pantries and schools and the network of people we work with to distribute food are, in fact, part of the health care team. Mm-hmm. But they're not called part of the health care team necessarily, right? But they're dependent on as being part of the healthcare team. And so I think the at least the summary of the report draws that conclusion pretty starkly and says if we depend on these people to be part of the healthcare team, the healthcare system needs to think about how to pay for that. I mean, in the broadest kind of basic. Now, there were other conclusions, too, but, of course, that's the one I'm going to focus on because it's <laughs> what we do, right? But, but you know, those are, those are important things to say from a research perspective, right? It's not just somebody's opinion, right, let alone food banks' opinion, who are always looking for whatever resources we can get to meet the need in the community. But it's actually, you know, a, a much more specific and precise talking to doctors and saying, what are you actually doing, right? Oh, well, we refer people for this, or we don't ever refer people for that, or we don't even screen for that, or we screen a lot for that, and then we refer for it, but we don't know what happens next, right? I mean, it's that kind of survey that helps us understand what's really going on out there. So if we want people to to take advantage of food as medicine, right? If we want people to use food, which is fairly inexpensive and very accessible to help manage their chronic conditions, whatever they are, well, you've got to connect all these dots, right? you got to connect the screening and the referral and the fulfillment of that referral wherever that person goes to get food in this case. I mean, so I probably didn't say that perfectly, but but I mean, I think in at least in my read, that's really important as we communicate, you know, with the healthcare system about, okay, this is what's happening. So what do you then do next? And I'm not sure, did the report get into that a little bit? The okay, so based on knowing this now, what do we do next? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you you raised that point um, because, you know, in the report, we point to gaps, right? So I think, you know, a a little over 40% of physicians said they didn't know where to refer for food uh, insecurity. And I think about half said that they they don't uh, regularly screen um, for food insecurity. And so uh, a big part of the report in that conversation is, you know, why might those gaps exist? And I think traditionally, you know, there's this tendency to think, you know, about how we can intervene at the physician level, right? Is it like, what trainings can we bring physicians to? Like, how do we convince physicians to screen? But there's this whole other, um, you know, component of that gap, which is, you know, are, do um, CBO, or I, so I say CBO, so I'll, you know, community-based organizations like food banks and things like that, do they have the capacity, do they have the resources, not only to, um, you know, support the patients that are being referred to them, um, but also, you know, uh, health systems are often kind of, 
you know, really encouraging this communication, right? This closed re- referrals with the these health exchange platforms. Do they have the support needed to engage in those platforms? Um, because a lot of resources are often needed to take part in that conversation. Um, well, I think that the state of Michigan certainly has a, a, a role in, in the as this refers to Medicaid in particular. Mm-hmm. Look, we got to take a quick break here, but we gotta, we're got we going to come back because this is right in both of our wheelhouses, I think, uh, Marissa, that the, the report that you guys have written, um, is it, it sounds like um, a, 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 almost a map of the journey we've, taking, we've been taking on this food as medicine and and uh, food uh, used as as prescription as part of somebody's treatment plan. Jerry has a lot of experience in that. But we're going to come back in a minute and and talk more about this report and uh, why it matters to the folks in Michigan who are struggling under the toxic stress of being food insecure. She's Dr. Marissa Worka. That's Jerry Basson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're all three back with you in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Jerry Brisson is here in the studio, CEO and president at Gleaners Community Food Bank and the chair of the Food Bank Council Board of Directors, myself, Dr. Phil Knight, and our guest, Dr. Marissa Rurka, who is a project manager at the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan, who comes to us all the way from Purdue. So (laughs) we're glad you're here because this report is just like it's, like I said at the end of the last segment, it just looks like a lot of the life we've been living as we try to integrate ourselves into healthcare and one of the things, Marissa, that, that you, you used this term in the last segment, closed loop referrals. So, I, I, you know, there's a, you think about North Carolina and Oregon and California and Massachusetts that's built this at the state level. We're not quite ready to do that in Michigan. Um, I, I think the fellows that, the folks that unite us would really be excited about that if we were, but we're not quite there. But I can tell you that, that, we at the Food Bank Council and our members understand this and see this, and we run uh, one of our, our services to the state is a helpline. And we're investing in that helpline um, as of August, October 1st to, to use that helpline as one of the missing parts, ingredients in that closed loop referral. So when you talk about 40% of the physicians, physicians don't know where to refer someone for food, they're going to have that 1-800 number. They're going to come to us. We're going to find out where they live and and what programs they qualify for, help them with that. And then if they if they live in, in, in one of the five counties that, that Gleaners serves, then we'll contact Gleaners. They'll put the box together. And in our perfect scenario, DoorDash will come and pick that box up and deliver it to the patient's home. Now that's a pretty good closed loop referral network right there. 
Yeah, I love all the collaboration and bringing everyone together for that. And I do think, you know, I love the idea of that call line because, you know, I think physicians want to to help patients in this way, but, you know, they have a lot of time pressures. And I think, you know, the easier you can make it, you know, is really important. Um, Yeah, I think mm -hmm. so. Jerry, I'm going to impose on you to tell a quick story about when you guys first started pioneering this work into healthcare and you met with some nurses and right. what was what was the reaction when you started this conversation about food insecurity and healthcare well let's just start with they came to us right the nurses called us out of the blue and said we're seeing a bunch of people who need food and we're absolutely heartbroken we're just crushed by this it's it's every day our teams have to deal with people coming in and sometimes people were coming to the emergency room hoping to get admitted just so they could eat hmm. right that that was that was happening and happening enough that the nurses reached out to us and said we got to start somewhere we don't know what to do now this is quite a few years ago um I've been at this for 30 some years so you know thus the gray hair which no one on the radio can see yeah, uh, but uh <laughs> But, you know, I, I think that um, I really liked what you had to say about it's not just an issue for doctors and healthcare. It's also an issue for the community-based organizations to be communicating in a way that, that, it, that it removes the gap of, well, what do you actually do? Right. What do you do? How does it work? Because why wouldn't people believe that just a referral with nothing else is enough? How would they ever know? Right? right, because unless there's some kind of communication, and and you use the word collaboration, absolutely collaboration. Part of the reason we started the conversation with the nurses and then continued it th- through many different um, healthcare organizations and opportunities, is just because that that this is who we are and this is who you are. We didn't really understand how healthcare worked either. I mean, there was a lot of holes in everybody's understanding that get filled year by year by year, and it gets right back to the report, right? It, mm-hmm. We continue to work on it, and, and it's got to be disciplined. It's got to be deliberate, and it's got to have ends in mind that can be solved, right? All those things have to be happening in order to see progress, especially for the, for the people who are affected most, and that's the patients that need the food. And I think, Marissa, that the gap you, refer, you talk about in the report that – 50% of physicians don't refer. And one of the reasons that we found out from the nurses that they don't refer is cause you know, they didn't, there's what you said, they didn't know where to. And they didn't, and, and it was like, they didn't want to screen because they didn't have an answer. Right. Mm-hmm. And, right. and I think that, that is, we, that part has grown and it is growing. And I hope with this helpline now, we'll at some scale be able to help connect those dots so the physicians will then know that their patients actually did get the food that they want and need and it's part of their treatment plan it's not just charity mm-hmm. and i think that's really important yeah i mean and i think it's it is really telling that the nurses came to you because i think it just speaks to you know it's it's incredibly stressful for for nurses and physicians to not be able to meet this need and i think you know coming to you and realizing the importance of that collaboration is is really telling of you know how important it is 
And then also from the the patient's perspective, from the community member's perspective, when everyone works together, it's just a much more, you know, positive experience. It can be very frustrating when everything is siloed and you feel like you're telling your doctor one thing and other organizations one thing and they're just not, you know, everything is so disjointed. That can be very frustrating for people. So, um, you know, they call it health care, right? That's the care part, right? It's not health don't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's health care. That that requires care, right? And caring. Mm-hmm. And it's been, I mean, way the majority of our experience are, are with people who care and who really care about the people coming to see them. And so, you know, it's it's it is a big system. I mean the the data system is called Epic and there's a lot of different ways you can spell Epic. And they mean different things, but one means huge, and it probably doesn't exactly mean unwieldy, but it could, right? So we have to be sensitive to what people have to deal with to really make these closed-loop referrals happen. But uh, but in any case, I think the report and the and the continued work that you're doing on um, on making sure that everybody is understanding where the handoffs are and aren't, where the gaps are and aren't, are the way that we start to chip away at these epic systems <laughs> yeah. and get them to actually work right. And uh, and they do work in a lot of ways. I don't want to be too negative about that, but uh, but as you think about then, you know, so we've talked about aspects of this report and why it's important. What are some other things that that come out of it for you? As you start to reflect about, you know, whether it's next steps or whether it's, you know, the the actual information and some of the aha moments. I mean, what are some of the other things that you would put front and center for our listeners as we're talking about this work? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think, you know, in the report, we point out particular, you know, we look at physicians overall, but we also look at, you know, are there some groups that might need more support than others, you know? And I think, you know, one of the things we've seen and one of the areas where the gap is actually largest is um, differences in rates of referral knowledge and screening for specialists versus primary care physicians. And I think, you know, in an ideal world, you know, and we talk about communication and being siloed. And I think, you know, in an ideal world, those two groups would be communicating with each other about patients' needs. But I think, you know, in reality, um, you know, that can be difficult. And, you know, sometimes, you know, for patients, uh, a point of entry is a specialist, right? And so we need to be able to make these connections and communicate about patients' needs no matter where a patient enters the system. And so, you know, I, I see that as an area where, you know, there's some room for growth. Makes um, a lot of sense based on our experience too. You know, one of the people that one of the things that the people we serve complain about is everywhere they go, they got to give them the same information. Mm-hmm. So if they have to go ten different places, they're given the same information ten times, ten times, ten times, and sometimes it's a pretty significant amount of information. So it is a barrier to healthcare, but it's also a barrier to people getting the help they really need to manage their life, whether that's government supports that are in place that could be helping them but they don't know how to access them or they've accessed one piece and now to get access to another piece. So if you qualify for SNAP and also WIC, 
How do you, in one visit, take care of all of that? Well, what if you need SNAP, WIC, and supplemental food from a pantry? You know, how many things do you have to do to get everything you need? And you can just keep adding to that, right? Because there are supports available for low-income people, but navigating those supports can be pretty tricky. Absolutely. Guys, let's take a quick break here. We're going to come back with Dr. Marissa Worka, who is the project manager at the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. You come back and be with us. We're going to be right here. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back with you, and thanks for being with us. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. Our guest, Dr. Marissa Worka, who is the project manager, lead analyst, too. You got a lot of responsibility <laughs> at the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan. They published a report that really impacts how we do our work and the partnerships. Uh, collaboration comes up quite a bit on this show and in our own internal conversations and and, we, you know, we, we do not think food banks are the solution. We do believe we're a huge part of the answer. Um, and one of the reasons, Marissa, is because uh, while, while food banks here in Michigan, the seven Feeding America food banks, they serve all of Michigan's 83 counties, distribute millions of pounds of food. Almost half of that food is fresh. And, and what we've learned through the years is that you have to give people what they want and need. And so we've started pilots. Uh, Gleaners has had pilots with Henry Ford Health System. We have a current um, food pharmacy in uh, FQHC Grace Health down in Battle Creek where um, uh, the patient comes in, they're screened the two food insecurity questions, and as they make their way through the treatment that day, and they end up with the nutritionist who does the counseling, and then they actually go home with a, the food that they received the counseling about. So it, now it for them it becomes a part of the treatment plan, like I said earlier, and not just a charitable food distribution. And I think that's very uplifting. But one of the questions I want to ask if you guys, um, it, it, when I describe all that, you know, uh, at some point, somebody's got to pay for the food. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And so, um, you know, I, I noticed in the report that you did talk, you did address that. Because early on in these conversations, I think I think a lot of the leadership in healthcare didn't know what to do with this problem and so they they wanted to kind of leave that this food insecure problem at the community's doorstep rather than to engage in it now i think that conversation has changed a lot over the years and i congratulate them but at the bottom line is somebody's got to pay for the food and you guys somewhat address that i think in the report yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in efforts to increase screenings and referrals, um, you know, to a certain extent, physicians have received incentives, right? And there can be, you know, reimbursed through payer networks. I think, 
you know, um, community-based organizations like food banks, you know, they may not be and traditionally haven't been those those mechanisms to be um, kind of reimbursed for the really important role that you play. And I think that does a disservice um, to the work you do, but also to to patients and, mm. you know, um, being able to, to meet those needs. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's important that, you know, we find mechanisms to make sure that you're able to do the work um, and just recognize the important role that that you play. Um, well, you know, I think the, the, the one of the issues we've discovered in this conversation over the years is um, like like in the federally qualified health centers, you know, they're motive, they're uh, they're incentivized mm -hmm. with health cost savings with the patient. Right. Okay, so they get rewarded for those save with with money for those mm -hmm. savings, but you know we don't have any control over that budget. So how are those savings going to get applied? And and I you know we would like to think they get poured back into the program that helped create those savings, but there's no and that would be the food by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would you know, but we don't have any guarantee. We don't have any control over that, and I think that's probably something that has to be addressed, Jerry. I think that the trick is to understand how much, how often, and for how long. Because I don't think there's any real resistance to the idea that food is medicine. I don't think there's any resistance to that idea. Or it's if there is, it's so minor, it's not worth talking about, right? Most people in healthcare understand that food is medicine, I would say, across the board. Well, what, they'd have to take it up with Socrates if they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard to do. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> uh, but but we've got to be able to help answer the questions, how much food, how often, and for how long? Because healthcare can't be expected just to foot the whole bill for every amount of food that food insecure people need forever. True. Right? We've got to broaden the conversation to include all of the people who have a vested interest in you know, solving these social determinants of health or else or else it's hard to make progress because you'll get resistance by people saying, look, we're we want to contribute, but but we don't see ourselves as the landing place for this whole problem. And I think that's a really legitimate point of view. Right. Yeah. So so I think one of the things that we're learning in as we as we study things like this report is the significance of answering how much of this is it appropriate for healthcare to be responsible for? So if we can close the gaps in information, if we can, if people know where to make referrals, those referrals have some means of being supported for some amount of time while a patient is going through a particular thing in their life, then you start to close that gap on how much, how often, and for how long. Now, the the world is comprised of people that need a little, not often, and not for long. And a lot, often, and for long, right? <laughs> yeah. And everything in between. So the better, and this is where your statistics come in and why we need smart people like you, Marissa, to help us. Because at the end of the day, we've got to know what that curve is. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and if we can't address the whole curve, maybe we can focus in on those parts that we can address at a reasonable cost for a reasonable amount of time that returns enough to health care that you can start to make progress. Of course, whenever you do that, you've got to be careful about is it fair?
and does it disproportionately affect some people more than others? So I lay all that out just to say it sounds simple, but it's never simple. That you know, simple ideas generally don't fix complicated problems. Well, what do you say? You know, the less you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know. But Marissa's kind of messing that up for us. <laughs> she's, 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 you know, giving us a lot of knowledge here that we're going to be accountable for. So thanks a lot, Marissa. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Little data dump for you. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. You keep doing it. So, so what? It, what do you guys hope? Uh, three of you invested a good portion of your life and time in this report. Uh, it obviously means something to you. It's a bit of a life pursuit, I think, uh, certainly educationally and professionally. So what, what do you, what, what's your, what's the dream? What, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, I think for us, you know, and part of the the um, encouraging part of the report is just we're able to see some progress in that area. So, you know, hopefully being able to, to share that and just, you know, um, kind of note all of the work that's been done. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, you know, bringing attention to those gaps and, and making sure that the conversation isn't just, you know, how can we, you know, make sure physicians are doing X, Y, and Z, but really broadening that to consider, you know, who are all the partners and, you know, where, um, what changes can, you know, will have the biggest impact on, on those gaps um, and be sustainable. So, um, yeah. Well, that's mm-hmm. that's we we it's a we're talking about gaps here. It's a knowledge gap too, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not just with the physicians, but with you know Jerry's point about well, well, how much of this problem is mine? Whether mm-hmm. you're healthcare or whether you're state government or federal government or community-based organizations, you know, and individual personal responsibility as well. So, Jerry, last thought here for Marissa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't come to us in chunks, right? They come to us as their whole person. Mm-hmm. And so so when you start taking responsibility for any of this, it it, be, it can be overwhelming because it is the whole person in front of you. You can't just say, oh, I'll take this little piece of you and fix that, right? You've got that whole person. And I think keeping in mind that the, the more we know about each of the people coming to us and, and how to address that whole person situation, the more effective we're going to be in not only providing whatever treatment or intervention is needed, but seeing positive change in that person's life as a result of that treatment. Right. But the more complicated you have, the harder systems are need to work in order to make that all come together. So the data in in things like this report are helping us to to know how where the systems need to work harder, the kinds of things we need to do to to invest in getting those systems to work harder and better. And the ultimate goal is that the community thrives. You know, one of the things we really try hard to say is we don't help needy people. I mean, everybody needs health care, for example, and you don't go, oh, you're needy, you're needy. Everyone walking (laughs) in the door is needy, right? Well, everybody needs food, too. And yet there's a tendency to think of people who need food as needy. But the fact is there are people who want to thrive, can thrive, are working at thriving. And that's the right narrative to put this all in, right? We're in a position to help people thrive. And that's really important. Marissa, it has been a joy to have you here. But you know what? 
you get almost the last word for this segment. So thanks for investing your handful of life in this work, and thanks for being here with us on Food First Michigan. And thank you so much for for having me. You know, I think for us, you know, we're we're big data nerds, you know, (laughs) and and we just get so excited because the data is telling us all these really important things. But it's really important that the data serves a purpose and is, you know, um, gets in the hands of the people who are on the ground, you know, doing the work so that, you know, um, we can all move this forward. And so um, thank you so much for, for having me. Yes, um, great to have you. Data-driven decisions, that's our, that's our pursuit for sure. She is Dr. Marissa Ruka. She is the project manager at the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan by way of Purdue University in Lafayette, Indiana. You can tell I spent some time there. So um, it's great to have you. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. Jerry and I are back in just a moment to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry, quick thoughts on the, this show and what it means to our work. Yeah, this is so important. You know, having good data makes us more effective all around. So great to have Dr. Marissa on. And uh, we got to let people know how to find the information in the report. So if they go to chrt.org. chrt.org. So it's the Center for Health and Research Transformation, but don't put the A in. No chrt.org. Yeah, no, vowels are not important. So, <laughs> time for a little food for thought. Jerry, since knowledge is power and is powerful, the more we know, the more we can discern, discover, and develop ideas to create positive solutions. Using data analytics, research projects, programs, and partners are all a part of the work we're trying to do at the Food Bank Council. It's part of our scientific approach to creating a food-secure Michigan. When we do this by putting and keeping food first, folks, food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.